why is the grass always green on the other side? Does finding 100 euros on the street make us as happy as losing 100 euros while walking around make us sad? Why are our expectations very important when it comes to how we evaluate certain situations? And finally, how do services like Netflix and Amazon Prime gain new consumers? These and many more questions will be answered in the first episode of the Cultivate Greatness Radio Hour. This week's topic, Lost Aversion. and welcome to the latest episode of the Cultivate Greatness Radio Hour, where you're able to gain a better understanding of the inner workings of human decision-making by learning about different concepts from the realms of behavioral economics and business psychology. Today, in the inaugural episode of this podcast, we will be covering loss aversion. We'll cover a formal definition of the term, typical ways of thinking about loss aversion, as well as real-life examples where it needs to be considered. Finally, we will be talking about expectation-based loss aversion and what to do with all the pieces of information you were able to gather concerning this topic. Are you ready? Let's get started. So, what do we mean when we talk about loss aversion? In simple terms, it says that losing something, an amount of money, an item, etc., feels worse than gaining the same thing. In its proposition, it's actually quite simple. It was coined by Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, who laid the groundwork for behavioral economics as we know it today. Loss aversion is one of the fundamental concepts of prospect theory, which describes how people choose between different prospective options and encapsulates a more realistic way of thinking about decisions in comparison to a simple discounted utility model. But that's a topic for another episode. So... This means that people suffer more from losses than they enjoy gaining the same thing. Maybe you've heard the expression, losses loom larger than gains. Feels intuitive? In common research, you can find maybe the most prominent and definitely one of the easiest ways to think about loss aversion quite often. Imagine someone proposes a gamble to you. This person will flip a fair coin. If heads is displayed, you gain 5 euros. However, if tails is displayed, you lose 5 euros. Will you take part in this gamble? That is what is called a lottery and your decision gives away how you think about losses and gains. Well, as well as risk, but that is also a topic for a different episode. Now, if you did not participate in this type of gamble, how would the person proposing this gamble to you need to change the values in order for you to consider participating? According to research done by Kahneman and Tversky, losses are twice as powerful compared to equivalent gains. Meaning, in this example, the person would need to offer you 10 euros for heads in comparison to the 5 euros you would lose from choosing tails. Although this example might have been a bit more intuitive, let us now move on to more examples. The principle of loss aversion is also well encapsulated in the research on the so-called endowment effect, which could also very well be yet another topic for a standalone episode. But in a nutshell, people are more likely to retain an object they own then acquire the same object when they do not own it why is that because of loss aversion losing something you have hurts more than not gaining something you have never owned but moving on now most of the things that i've talked about until now are theoretical or experimental but how is loss aversion applied in real life examples and applications number one think about how insurances work 
Insurance company websites will often display a long list of unlikely yet costly outcomes that we may encounter should we not buy insurance. This list of potential unfortunate events primes us towards the preference of avoiding these large losses and makes us forget about the small but regular payments we would need to make into the future to ensure insurance coverage. Even though the likelihood of a costly event may be minuscule, we would rather agree to a smaller sure loss than risk a large expense. Next up, investment decisions. People more often focus on the risks associated with an investment rather than on the potential gains. This can also lead to hyper-focusing on an investment that has lost money while ignoring others. Further, people may be unwilling to make, make financial decisions that represent loss, such as selling a stock when it's low or a house that has fallen below the price at which it was purchased, even though the decision itself may be the best option. In this context, I will mention just briefly two things that will most definitely have their own standalone episodes. One is sunk cost fallacy and the other one is mental accounting. Another implication of loss aversion for behavioral finance is that price increases hurt more than price decreases help. For example, a study found that in a two-year time span in the 1980s, uh, I, I believe it was 1981 to 1983, a 10% increase in the price of eggs led to a 7.8 decrease in demand whereas a 10% decrease in the price of X led only to a 3.3% increase in demand. In standard economic theory, this elasticity would be the same. So um, if there's a 10% increase um, and there's then a 7.9% decrease, in the other, the other way around, when there's a 10% decrease, the increase would should be as large as the decrease was when the prices was, were increased. hope this makes sense, but... Um, the point is that these numbers are vastly different from another um, and they should be the same if standard economic theory would make a good prediction here. But it isn't, so um, it doesn't. And uh, this is why, why um, the frame uh, is very important here because um, if the price is increased, then people lose something. If the price decreased, they gain something that they never really had. So this is uh, where loss aversion comes into play here. Now on to one of my favorite areas, motivation, self-control, and commitment, or making people change their behavior. Loss aversion can explain why penalty frames are sometimes more effective than reward frames in motivating people. Websites like Stick or Beeminder allow people to publicly commit to a positive behavior change. For example, give up junk food, quit smoking, etc. The goal-setting platform created by behavioral economists at Yale University draws on the principles of loss aversion. For example, if a user wants to lose weight, the decision to not go to the gym may be coupled with the fear of loss, a cash penalty. In another case, in 2017, researchers tested the theory of loss aversion by assessing whether charging a tax of $5 had a bigger impact on plastic bag reduction than offering a bonus of the same amount. The results show that plastic bag usage declined by 42% after the tax was implemented, but did not change significantly in the bonus treatment, evidence consistent with the model of loss aversion. Firms can also take advantage of loss aversion Firms can also take advantage of loss aversion through offering free trial periods, for example. Once a consumer has the product, it becomes much less willing to give up something it has gotten used to in the meantime. So, for example, a supermarket may offer a free-month trial for free delivery. When we get used to free delivery of groceries, we don't want to give up, so we are willing to pay. Designers of these offers and products are tapping into the fear response 
causing people to make snap decisions because they don't want to feel like they've lost out. The same thing happens when you use the free first month of Netflix, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and many other different things and services. Finally, loss aversion implies that scaling back is painful. When people contemplate buying new things, such as purchasing a fancier car or a bigger house, they often tell themselves that they can always downsize if they can no longer afford these luxuries in the future. However, people underestimate how emotionally difficult this decision actually is. In a study, consumers in the US and Italy were asked to either build up from a consumable-based product by adding components or scale down from a fully loaded product by subtracting components. In this example, the, the, this base product was a pizza. In each country, consumers ended up with significantly more ingredients and a pizza for a higher cost in the scale-down condition than in the build-up condition. In essence, because in the scale-down condition, people already had the ingredients chosen for them, they were less willing to give up on them than in the other condition. This is typical loss aversion. Now, it is time for us to take a quick break, but when we are back, we will talk more about loss aversion, mainly about expectation-based loss aversion, and finally, we will answer the question whether something can be done about this. See you in a bit. If you like what you have been hearing so far and you want to help this podcast to reach more people, it would mean a lot if you were able to leave a rating on iTunes. Additionally, if you are interested in learning more about fundamental concepts of behavioral economics and how you can use them to make better decisions in your own life going forward, consider following us on Instagram at Cultivate Greatness. And we're back. After talking about the definition of loss aversion as well as real-life examples where it plays a role, we will now move on to put loss aversion into a context with expectations. Why are the expectations of an individual worth considering when it comes to loss aversion? Due to the fact that one anticipates that something happens, this person can experience loss aversion without actually physically losing something. An outcome outside of the anticipated one and or the status quo can lead to the individual feeling like something has been lost. For example, when the individual expects to buy a pair of shoes and a certain pair of shoes is no longer available, a feeling of loss is experienced. The idea behind this is simple. Your expectation of what is going to happen will color your reaction to what actually happens. Let's look at two examples. Theories suggest that pay raises below a reference point will reduce job performance. Final offer arbitration for police unions provides a unique opportunity to examine these theories, as a study in 2006 showed, as the police officers either receive their requested wage or receive a lower one. In the months after New Jersey police officers lose an arbitration, arrest rates and average sentence length decline, crime reports rise relative to when they win. These declines in performance are larger when the awarded wage is further from the police union's demand. The second example has to do with how cab drivers in New York City decide when to stop working on a given day. A study from 1997 tested the behavior of NYC cab drivers while receiving different types of wages. 
standard theory of labor supply would predict that drivers will work the hours that are most profitable, which means work long hours on good days and quit early on bad days. The empirical correlation between hours and wages is strongly negative for inexperienced drivers and close to zero for experienced drivers. What does this mean? It means that inexperienced drivers make decisions about how many hours they work one day at a time instead of intertemporarily substituting labor and leisure across multiple days and they set a loose daily income target and quit working once they reach their target. So in simpler terms, they expect to earn a certain amount of money on a given day, and as soon as they reach that threshold, they are most likely to stop working for the day. Well, now you might say that this is all fine and dandy, but is there something that can actually be done about this? Or is all of this just an interesting fact? Or interesting? are these interesting facts? First of all, we can look at neuroscience to learn more about why this actually happens. In 2010, an experiment has been conducted where subjects were asked whether or not they were willing to accept, accept a variety of monetary gambles, each with a different gain or loss. There were two groups of participants. The first group had damaged amygdala, a part of the brain, and the other group's participants didn't. The study found that participants with the damaged part of the brain took risky gambles much more often than subjects that had no brain damage. In fact, the first group showed no aversion to monetary loss whatsoever, in sharp contrast to the controlled subjects. This area of the brain, the amygdala, is a small area in the brain which has a primary role in the processing of memory, decision-making, and emotional responses. When you step back and realize that the one place where decisions are made is also where emotional responses emit from, it's understandable why we are so influenced by biases like loss aversion. It's actually quite difficult to avoid loss aversion as it's tightly integrated into our psyches. When you're faced with a decision, try to be rational and remember to say no to things you don't really need to save yourself from wasting money or making bad decisions. Losing something is a rational fear, but it's important to weigh up that emotional response against the potential gains. For example, if you don't take that free trial offer, you could save yourself hundreds of euros in the long run. So are you really using? The main way to conquer the loss aversion bias is through self-awareness and understanding the context the next time you make a decision. Being aware of it might help. Forewarned is forearmed. For example, suppose you are decluttering your home. Using this knowledge, you can view each item as if you were a non-owner and apply simple tests. If you didn't have the item, how much would you be willing to pay to buy it? Just by changing your perspective, you can gain clarity to make you less vulnerable. We can also take a broader perspective. Stoic philosophy teaches if you have lost someone or something precious, you can try to value that person or object differently by imagining that you never knew that person or never owned that subject. If you feel tired of everything you possess, pretend that you have lost all these things and are missing them desperately. Doing so will make us value what we already have and possibly prevent the grass is always greener syndrome. And that's it for this episode of the Cultivate Greatness Radio Hour Learners. As this show is still relatively new and will continue to be experimental, I would really appreciate any kind of feedback on its contents. So please let me know what you liked, what you didn't like, what you would be interested in hearing about, anything you have to say about the show really. It's easiest to reach me on Instagram. It's either darts94x, that's D-A-R-T-S-9-4-X, or Cultivate Greatness, C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-E, 
G-R-E-A-T-N-E-S-S. The URLs to everything can be found in the show notes of this episode. Thank you for tuning in and listening to the latest episode of the Cultural Greatness Radio Hour. Be sure to check out previous and upcoming episodes via your podcast app of choice or at anchor.fm slash cgrh where all episodes of the podcast can be found. Thanks again and I will catch you guys next week.